Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History Emeritus at Exeter University. He is also a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia and is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today having written well over 100 books. Today we are speaking about his book, War in Europe, 1450 to Present, published by Bloomsbury. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor Black, what is the thesis of your book? This book looks at war and its contexts in Europe from 1450 to the present day. And what I really am taking issue with um, is the Charles Tilly thesis about war making the state and the state making war. And I'm trying to argue that the military, social, political and economic dynamics of war in Europe are much more complex than have usually been allowed for. So it's a rewriting of military history and it's a rewriting of European history. Would it also be correct to say that you are opposed, and this comes out in the book, uh, to a teleological or, if you like, Whiggish a reading of military history. Yes, I think that's very true. My own uh, fundamental view is that military systems develop that are in the context in which they are facing fit for purpose. And the idea that then, therefore, one should have a developmental context in which, shall we say, whatever happens in 2020 is inherently better than whatever happens in 1960 is, I think, deeply flawed. So uh, that also is um, part of the explanation about why you are um, unconvinced, I suppose you can say diplomatically speaking, by the concept of uh, the, quote, European military revolution, unquote, in the 16th century later. Yeah, I've addressed in a number of books, uh, particularly my book, Beyond the Military Revolution, and my books are designed to sit alongside each other. I've addressed that 
so that I didn't wish to repeat simply what I'd said there. And that book itself looks at it on the global scale. This is a book specifically about Europe, and it's specifically about the nature of military, social and political interactions. Now, one of the interesting aspects of the book, which uh, contrasted with most of the treatments of uh, military history, not only in this period, but in general, is that you don't focus on what uh, most other treatments would characterize as key or epoch-making particular battles. Why is that? Because I think that there is, in a sense, too much of a battle-focused account of military history. As you probably know, the same thing is true, for example, in the American Civil War. Uh, many of the clashes that one is looking at were relatively small-scale, uh, what was called a small war or little war, um, battles themselves. And I did a book, as you may know, on 70 great battles in history. The battle lists are often highly selective, and one has to be very cautious about how much weight you put on a particular battle. So let, let's give you a good example. If you're looking at the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 48, and you're just looking at the major battles, which one of Breitenfeld, Lutzen, and Nerdlingen is more significant? And you've got to be very careful. And, you know, if uh, Breitenfeld and Lutzen were um, deployed in order to argue for the superiority of the Swedish military uh, means, well, how does that deal with the fact that two years after Lutzen at Nerdlingen, the Swedes lose? So I think one has to be much more sophisticated. Again, if you're looking at the 17th century, people have often put a lot of uh, weight on the Battle of Roqua in 1643, in which the French under Condé beat the army of Flanders, the Spanish army. And yet, as we know, um, the, the French don't conquer most of Flanders for another 16 years. Um, so I think one's got to be very careful about this great battles approach. Why do you say that the ambitions of rulers was the key element in the military history of this period? Well, I think it's often the ambitions of rulers which explain how they prioritize between tasks and also how they determine um, what kind of domestic constituency or political alliance among their generally their social elite, their aristocracy, they're going to be able to construct to what end? So there's nothing in the milk, in the water. You know, there's no equivalent of somebody coming down from Mount Sinai and saying, this has to be your priorities in terms of tasking. And one of the things I've argued repeatedly in my work on military history is that tasking uh, helps to determine uh, your alliances, your force structures, your doctrine, your strategy, the dynamic of military change. And that tasking is not inevitable. So, you know, to, to use a concept which you're, you and I are familiar with, um, strategic uh, culture. Yes, there are specifics one can refer to that might, you know, for example, the Russian drive to warm water seas, the French drive to uh, so-called natural frontiers. But how those were perceived and how those were understood in terms of what was believed appropriate is much more a matter of how the individual monarch uh, saw matters. Why, if at all, did military effectiveness in campaigning increase in the mid to late 17th century? 
I would argue that the key uh, development here is the um, after the so-called mid-17th century crisis, the re-knitting of relationships between crown and social elite, so particularly uh, in France, in Spain, in the Habsburg lands, uh, in Russia, and that what that does is create the social dynamic of elite cohesion with the crown that makes it possible to increase the military effort and to sustain it. So in other words, that is, if you wish to use the term, a sociological or political explanation of military effectiveness and not one based on certain types of weapons or or individual tactical formations that go with them. You seem in the book to downplay the significance of the French army and the French way of war in the late 17th century as a model. Why is that? Well, first of all, there's been a lot of very good recent revisionist work. I think, for example, the work of David Parrott and Guy Rowlands, which have indicated that the the account based on the idea that Le Tellier and Louvois as ministers of war uh, transformed France so that it became the most effective military power needs at the very least to be qualified. And separate to that, as you may know, I did a book once on French foreign policy from 1648 to 1815. And one of the points I I emphasize there is that, yes, France did conquer territory, and some of that territory remains French to the present day, places like Franche-Comte, for example, or Artois. But compared with the major accessions of territory gained by conquest in that period by both Austria and Russia, France, in actual fact, became uh, uh, sort of in relative terms weaker in the European international system. And correspondingly, of course, at sea, um, it is surpassed, beaten, whatever terms you wish to, to use, by Britain. How do you explain the, uh, in this, almost in the same period, immediately following during the war, the Spanish secession, the relative or more than relative success of the Anglo-Dutch armies? Well, again, I think that's an excellent question. Can I say partly, I mean, obviously, this is a question of which context one's looking at. Uh, The Duke of Marlborough um, was very successful in the Low Countries and also, of course, in the Danube Valley at Blenheim. But other uh, British forces, allied forces, were very unsuccessful when they uh, acted in Spain during what was, in effect, a Spanish civil war. So there wasn't something uniquely successful about uh, the, the, the British model, if you like. I think Marlborough was a very good general. I think that the military administrative system that uh, the British and the Dutch deployed was important. I think the French alliance system fracturing uh, was very significant. I think there was a decline in the caliber of French generals after the Marshal Duke de Luxembourg, uh, although Beric was very successful in Spain. Um, And I think much of it, though, also does come down to what happens on the day. Uh, Marlborough is extremely good at, as it were, the what almost is a classic technique, which is forcing the other side to feed in their reserves and then smashing through at another point. He does that brilliantly at Blenheim, of course, 1704 by 1709 at Malplaquet. The French have worked out what he's doing, and although he wins there, it comes with extraordinarily heavy uh, casualties. So in effect, 
What you could argue, and I think you, I would argue the same thing that you would see with Frederick the Great in the mid-18th century, I would say the same with Napoleon, um, and I would say the same with the Imperial German Army in World War I and the Wehrmacht in World War II. You can have a capability gap in your, at, uh, at your advantage, but that capability gap um, it ends when your opponent devises the appropriate anti-tactics, as it were. In the book, you, you make reference to the relative success of Spanish arms in the period after 1714. Why do you think that most histo military historians uh, tend to ignore this uh, recovery? Well, I think you're absolutely right. They do. And I think it's an enormous problem, the selectivity with which people engage in history as a whole. There is a tendency to primitivize Mediterranean um, in the 18th and 19th centuries to regard it as, as it were, uh, backward. Um, obviously, you see that in the decline of Spain literature, first of all, with the 17th century and then into the 18th and the 19th. Um, and I think that there are both inherent prejudices, which I think are a problem. Uh, there is also obviously the extent to which there is a fascination with what appears to be the cutting edge uh, military. There's this notion that, as it were, is kind of what I've called the uh, baton exchanging approach to military history. So you move um, from the Spanish army in the 16th century to the French army in the 17th, to the Prussian in the 18th, to the French again in the uh, Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, to the Prussian again uh, in the 19th. I think this is ridiculous because uh, aside from the fact that you tend to not pay sufficient heed to the particular deficiencies or taskings of, taskings of those militaries, you don't look uh, more widely. Um, so, you know, to my mind, Spain and, you, you know, for example, a country which had taken, you know, really difficult civil war and yet by 1717 has reconquered Sardinia, 1718 lands an expeditionary force in uh, Sicily, 1734 to 35. Uh, recaptures um, Naples and Sicily. You know, this is a formidable power, builds up a major navy in the 18th century. Um, I, I think it's very significant, but I'm afraid to say, as you correctly suggest, it doesn't fit in with people's pattern building. And one of the great problems I fear, feel and fear about history is that the tendency to pattern build means that we not only produce a misunderstanding of the past, we also use that in order to produce often very questionable judgments about the present day. So, in, in actual fact, you do not regard uh, as a very revolutionary the employment of tactics by the French revolutionary armies of the 1790s, or for that matter, in by uh, thereafter by Bonaparte himself in terms of his generalship. Well, I mean, clearly, uh, the French revolutionary armies were able to survive repeated attacks in the 1790s, and to that extent revolution was successful, but the idea that they would be able to spread their ideology successfully um, to, as it were, liberate Europe in their terms, no, that doesn't really work. I think Gunter Rottenberg worked out that roughly when the French and the Austrians fought in the 1790s, each side won uh, about half of the battles. 
Uh, Napoleon, of course, during the 1790s is successful in Italy, but fails in Egypt. Um, the war of the Second Coalition puts an enormous pressure on the revolutionaries. And ultimately, the failure of the revolutionary system is what provides the background to the Napoleonic coup in 1799. Then if you're looking at the 1800s, um, there are aspects of Napoleonic uh, war making that are very impressive. The 1805 Austerlitz campaign, the 1809 uh, rejigging of a large army that uh, drives on Austria successfully in the war of the fourth coalition. But there are also, as you know, uh, repeated failures. Uh, Owen Connolly's book, uh, Blundering to Glory, his argument that at Marengo, it was in many senses an accident that Napoleon uh, won. Um, the way in which in 1806-1807, he was not able to deliver the hammer blows to really knock the Russians out in the latter stages of the war of the Third Coalition. Um, his total failure against Russia in 1812, um, in which, uh, you know, there is a fundamental uh, misunderstanding, not only at the operational level, but also at the strategic level. So, no, I, I feel that Napoleon... Uh, and again, you know, I'm looking at broader issues and themes of my military history. The fact that somebody can win individual battles does not necessarily make them a military genius. The question is, do you win the war? And in many senses, if you wish to use a historically, but they would have you they would have thought in these a historical terms in the 19th century. Napoleon is more like Hannibal than he is like Alexander the Great or Charlemagne. So, in actual fact, uh, to uh, go back to that old historical conundrum, you would see more continuity versus discontinuity um, in terms of uh, pre and post-1789 European warfare. Yes, um, I very much would. And I would argue that um, the, the image which Arthur Ferrell used in his book on Alexander the Great, in which he asks how Alexander the Great would have done at Waterloo, and the point he makes, a very fine passage in the book, he makes the point that, of course, Alexander the Great didn't have uh, gunpowder weaponry, but that essentially you have the same mixture of cavalry, uh, and infantry with infantry using missile weapons, in his case, javelins and arrows, as well as thrusting weapons, etc., etc. But there's similarities there. And I think there are more similarities between 1815 and, shall we say, the Battle of Pavia in 1525 um, than there are between uh, Waterloo and, shall we say, the nature, of, the nature of conflict by the time you're at, say, the Battle of Kursk in 1943, or indeed by the time you're at the Somme in 1916, where war is much more a process over many days, in the case of the Somme months, um, than it is a one-day wonder as it is at Waterloo. So in, act, in actual fact, that would partly explain why you seem in the book relatively unimpressed with the Prussian military success of the mid-19th century. Yes, I think that's very fair. I mean, uh, I mean, if you're looking at the Prussians, <laughs> they very much got, as indeed the Germans did in 1939-1940, um, opponents that played to their strengths. I mean, obviously, Denmark is a weak power. Uh, Austria, they don't need to subjugate. What they do is they 
beat it up in Bohemia, and then Austria essentially um, negotiates terms. So they get a very quick, short war that they want. In France in 1870 into 1871, it's more complicated. Napoleon III is a terrible general, um, loses what you might call a war of the frontiers within a month. And at that stage, the Prussians have totally won. And Napoleon III, of course, has surrendered. Then it starts to go pear-shaped for them in the sense that a a government takes over in, in France what becomes the Third Republic. It decides to go on fighting. The Prussians find themselves committed to a logistical, military and fiscal uh, strain of the struggle, which they hadn't anticipated. Their armies do, on the whole, reasonably well, though not as well consistently as they had done hitherto. But they're fight, finding occupation problems. They're finding that the war is going on. They need the war to be switched off. And that, of course, is uh, a real problem um, that, in a sense, war as an outcome process is very much one which is politically conditioned, notably by how your opponent responds to being beaten up, rather than one that you yourself can determine. Uh, Would you attribute the Russian failures in the Crimean, the Russo-Japanese, or for that matter, in the Great War, in their uh, being unable to successfully fight a war of attrition? Well, that's, again, very interesting. Um, I think these are different wars. I mean, first of all, the Crimea and the uh, Russo-Japanese War are wars at the periphery. So um, in um, 1854 to 1856, the Anglo-French forces do take uh, Sevastopol, uh, but there is no, they are fighting for a limited war goal. There is no, so they send fleets into the Baltic, but it doesn't attack St. Petersburg. There is no march on Moscow comparable to 1812 or for that matter, uh, 1941. And it's a limited war. 1904-1905, Russo-Japanese War, similar. Um, the Japanese beat up the Russian fleet disastrously for the Russians. They also inflict quite heavy blows on the Russian army in Manchuria. And that's it, limited war, so that in a sense, um, it is possible to get an outcome from it. The Great War, uh, the First World War, I think is rather rather different. Um, The Russians have a large uh, military in 1914. Indeed, uh, the Germans have been concerned about the build-up of their army after the uh, Russo-Japanese War. Um, But there are problems in generalship. There there are problems in um, the... Uh, what you might call the military-industrial complex, um, and the there is also a fatal uh, lack of an ability to maintain control on the home front. So it's only a relatively small number of Bolsheviks um, who uh, overthrow the Kerensky government. So the Romanovs have already been overthrown in the February Revolution, but the 1917, but that of Kerensky government goes on fighting. It's only a relatively small number of Bolsheviks that overthrow the Kerensky government, but um, that essentially is what delivers victory to the Germans. Um, so yes, I think there are multiple 
multiple failings for the Russians. But it's also worth bearing in mind, as I argued in the book, uh, that Russia, for example, had deployed its forces successfully into Hungary in 1849. It deployed its forces successfully into the Balkans in 1877 to 78. Yeah. It's regarded, it, it had conquered Central Asia, uh, Kiva, Bukhara, Samarkand, Merv in the 1860, Tashkent in the 1860s, 70s and 80s. Um, so, the, and, you know, it was worrying the British in the so-called great game over Afghanistan and over Persia. So whilst there are deficiencies with the Russian war machine, it's not immediately obvious to everybody that these are going to lead to failure uh, until you get the shock of conflict. Uh, would it be correct to say that you do not really adhere to the concept of the learning curve to explain the, uh, one could say, belated uh, success of Anglo-French arms in the Great War on the Western Front? Um, no, no I, I, I would say there is a learning curve. I, I would say there is a learning curve, and I would also say the... Um, uh, in terms of 1917 and 1918, and we have, Charles had a really interesting podcast, which I hope listeners can listen to, on why the Allies won uh, World War One, in which you asked me some really fascinating questions. I mean, what I would say is that in, in World War One, there are, as it were, for the British and the French, two different types of victory. There's the defensive victory which is achieved three times. In 1914, when the initial German drive is beaten, in, and subsequently, of course, they also beat the Germans, stopped them on their drive to the Channel. Um, the, uh, in 1916, when the Verdun uh, offensive fails, and in 1918, when the German spring offensives fail. So in those cases, there are three defensive victories, each of which are significant, but each of which are different in their character. And then subsequently, there is the so-called Hundred Days Offensive in 1918, in which the Germans are beaten on the Western Front. And there, I think, you see a very rapid but different uh, process of military effectiveness in the uh, various allied armies. So the Americans who have to have the quickest learning curve because their forces have come in most recently do improve their fighting effectiveness and techniques as Pershing and his commanders learn how to adapt to the warfare. But in the case of the British and the French who've had longer experience, I think the um, sequential attacks, the uh, the understanding of the three-dimensional battlefield, the application of heavy artillery in order to open up the uh, opposing front lines and to interdict their counter-offensive potential, um, the uh, also the benefit in on the Western Front of the consequences for Germany of the crises affecting its alliance partners, Bulgaria, uh, Austria, and the Ottoman Empire. All of those are significant. And to my mind, it is a formidable allied achievement in 1980. Why did the British Army's counterinsurgency campaign in Ireland between 1919 and 1921 uh, fail to succeed? Well, again, I think that's a fascinating question. 
I think there are a number of a number of issues to bear in mind. Um, first of all, there is the military side, and then there's the political side. As far as the military side is concerned, the military argued that it was because they weren't allowed to use their full force, both in the sense that they were also at that stage having large military commitments in Russia in the Civil War, in Egypt and Iraq, where they were opposing risings, in Afghanistan, where they were fighting the Third Anglo-Afghan War, etc., etc., and also because they were not allowed to uh, use uh, more rigorous tactics. Um, and I discussed that in my book on the interwar period. <laughs> Politically, I think there's also an element here that the, first of all, it is the political determination of the Irish Republicans to go on fighting that is important because in a sense they remain part of the equation even though they don't control really much uh, <coughs> territory but they remain um, part of the equation simply by keeping going but also because the British government really lacks an interlocutor with whom they can um, try and push for a compromise solution so I think there's a military disadvantages the British have, but also political disadvantages. How much of the German success in 1940 vis-à-vis -vis the Anglo-French in May and June was due to A, French collapse, B, German military brilliance, or C, plain old luck? Well, I think luck plays a role of what I would say improvisation. I mean, there the, if you look at the um, fighting on the, on the Merse crossings, which is really the, the most crucial aspect of it, it's, it's pretty touch and go. So the Germans at that point, improvisation, the Germans are also lucky that the Anglo-French strategy has conformed with what they, in a sense, need. So that uh, the mobile reserve is put on the left-hand side in order to rush forward through northern Belgium and into Holland to protect uh, Belgium and Holland against German invasion. And that enables the Germans to come through a weaker centre without the Allies having uh, reserves. So the situation is very different to the Battle of the Bulge in December 1944, when the Germans again come through a weak centre very uh, uh, bravely, but very uh, held with very few troops uh, in the Ardennes. But there are massive and readily deployed uh, American and British reserves from elsewhere that can be brought up. So partly, yes, improvisation, luck, whichever term you wish to use, as far as the French are concerned, um, the, it tends to be forgotten that the French went on fighting bravely. I think I'm correct in saying that they killed more Germans in June uh, 1940 than they did in May. Um, so they, the, the collapse is more, I would say, political than military. Um, there was no inherent need uh, for France to, uh, as it were, um, surrender. I mean, in a sense, the French government was running the second largest empire in the world and still had a significant fleet, um, and they could have so sailed off to uh, Algiers. Um, but uh, there was a degree of failure of nerve uh, in mid-June, and a sense that their duty required them to bring the war to a close. So that element, I think, is important. 
German brilliance, no. I think that that's um, overrated. I think Blitzkrieg was more uh, a, a another iteration of German maneuver warfare, um, and that had its strengths. But also, as uh, as everybody was to see in 1941 in the Soviet Union, its serious flaws when it came up against, uh, um, as it were, uh, defence in depth. Would you um, employ or state that uh, the learning curve concept? Uh, helps to explain Russian military success between 1942 and 1945. Yes, I do. I think that's very important. There were some Soviet units that fought effectively from the outset in 41, and Zhukov and his men had already put in a good showing against the Japanese in 39 in a short border war. And it's worth bearing in mind that eventually in 40, uh, the Soviets did beat the Finns in the Winter War. Everybody focuses on their lack of success in the first stage, but they did beat them. But I think it's fair to say that in 41 as a whole, although some Soviet unions fought very well, and indeed, uh, I think it's reasonable to say that the Battle of Smolensk uh, on the Army Group Center advance really uh, put sufficient damage on the Germans that you could op- argue that Operation Barbarossa had already failed. It was certainly off timetable by uh, September 1941. Um, but having said that, um, the Soviet fighting methods improved. There are still mistakes. Um, the excellent work of a number of scholars, most preeminently the American scholar David Glantz, has drawn attention to uh, failures in uh, in Soviet offensives, for example, the Belarus offensive in October 1943, or the way in which the advance into Romania in early 44 went wrong, or the failure of the offensive on the Central Front um, in late uh, 42. So the Soviets weren't invariably successful, but nevertheless. They had both mastered uh, how to stop the Germans in defense, as it were, the Soviet defense had, and then they had become successively more effective both in their own offensives and also during their own offensives at thwarting German counteroffensives. So the last really uh, successful German counteroffensive is the Manstein one in early 43, which consolidates the front line and regains Kharkov. Um, but the, uh, thereafter, there are no comparable uh, German successes. And, you know, it is an impressive Soviet feat. The Soviets get from the Volga to the Elba in uh, two and a half years. That is impressive, just as it's very impressive that the British and the Americans, the Canadians, of course, and the free French, uh, get from the uh, coasts of France to the Elba in less than a year. So the, these militaries have, as you correctly say, had an impressive learning curve. Uh, would you... Um, uh state that the the Anglo-American Strategic Air Offensive against Germany in 1942-1945 made military sense? Oh, it was absolutely necessary. I mean, first of all, 
It became the prime form of engagement of the Luftwaffe, air defense of the homeland, um, which, of course, reduced Luftwaffe support to the Wehrmacht. I think that's crucial. Uh, number two, it inflicted enormous damage to on the German military system, particularly on communications, particularly on oil production. And as we know, um, both natural oil as it closed in Romania, but also synthetic oil. And as we know, by 44, the effectiveness of German armor and air units are decreased because they have less oil, they, their, their troops are less well trained um, um, because they've had less practice, etc., etc. So yes, I think this was all very significant. And also, I actually think it was very significant politically. I mean, one of the key aspects of World War II is that there is no German or Japanese resistance after uh, surrender. Now, there are a number of reasons for this. The legitimacy of surrender, of going on fighting, was, as it were, ended by the, uh, by the imperial Japanese um, uh, surrender by the, um, by the emperor, and also, of course, Hitler's designated successor, Admiral Dönitz, surrenders. But I think also the morale of the Germans and the Japanese had been very badly hit by the very heavy bombing. And there's a very interesting piece which came out in the Journal of Military History recently by the American scholar Tammy Davis Biddle, very impressive piece in which she looks at the last six months of the war uh, against Germany and she uh, emphasizes the degree in which the Allied air attack increases uh, significantly in that period and she links that to Allied leaders being anxious about the resilience the Germans had shown in the bulge, the, um, the, also the German use of new weaponry, the jet fighter, the attempt of the Germans to develop the new submarine type and a sense that there had to be a use of all resources possible in order to force the Germans to uh, to defeat. And so I think there's not just, as it were, the kind of what I would call the battle of the factories and production in, in um, uh, 1943 and 1944, but also I think there is the attempt to dominate the German will in the last six months of the war. And I think that, again, is a very necessary feat. You remark in the book that, quote, military themes played a declining role in the culture of Western Europe in the second half of the 20th century. Why exactly did that occur? Yes, I think that's, again, very, very interesting. I think it's partly to do with the cultural change from the 1960s on, a kind of greater degree of consumerism, hedonism, individualism, feminization of culture to a considerable extent. Um, so I think that uh, those all played a role. Um, there had also been a compromising of old military elites um, as a result of the 1940s and what some of these elites had done during the war, but also as a result of political change thereafter. So that while on one hand you have the citizen under arms, the kind of the the fact that in the 1950s most European uh, men. Uh, both in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe were conscripts. 
um, at you know, some stage in their life, and that in many countries this went on for decades thereafter, you also have, as you correctly say, anti-war sentiment getting much stronger. Um, now, anti-war sentiment, though, becomes less significant in a way once you get rid of conscription because you have volunteer professional armies, and those are willing to do uh, what governments regard as necessary, uh, whatever the view of the civilian population. So, for example, I would argue, I have argued, um, that Britain was able to fight um, terrorism in Northern Ireland precisely because it had a professional volunteer army. And also, whether you think these were good or bad things, um, European states were able, those that chose, to take part in out-of-area wars, Gulf War One or Two, Afghanistan, French in West Africa, etc., precisely because these were volunteer units of professionals. What are the origins of what is in the UK referred to as the, quote, military covenant, unquote? Oh, this is the idea that there is, as it were, a implicit and as well as an explicit duty of care between um, uh, the military uh, and the ordinary soldiers with the state uh, being behind that of the military. So in other words, you should only be sent to war for a necessary purpose. Um, that you should be looked after, um, and that looking after takes a whole host of manifestations. So, for example, at the present moment, to a degree never seen before, there is concern about post-traumatic stress. Uh, there is very, you know, there is in the European sense more of an interest in veterans than there used to be, um, shall we say, a hundred years ago. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, military history is not some semi-detachable uh, facet of history, though it is, and to, it is still fascinating, but it is absolutely central to how we understand political, social, economic, and cultural history, and linked to that, that all too much of the approach in higher education um, to history is deeply flawed because it demilitarizes the past. Upon that observation, which I agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.